Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Let's read together, everybody. One Sabbath, when he came to dine at the house of, the, of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they how they chose to, I'm sorry, how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give, you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at, t at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say, Those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is, no, there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Luke must have been the world's first foodie. Uh, I think he was a gospel foodie. He just always talked about food. Even in the book of Acts, which is another book in the New Testament that Luke wrote, uh, he relays a story about one of the primary reasons that God gave us food. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas have just healed a man in the city of Lystra. And the city is like on fire. They're all buzzing about this healing. They think that these two dudes are gods themselves rather than the servants of the one true God. This is what happens next in Acts 14. 
can follow along on screen. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. Listen to this piece. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. So do you see how closely Luke ties witness with food? This is like party evangelism, I think. According to Luke here, food and gladness are how God bears witness to us about himself and how we are to bear witness to the world about him, food and gladness. And I I hope that by now, three weeks into this, that you're persuaded that hospitality is, in fact, at the core of the Christian experience. If you haven't been here for the last two weeks, maybe go back and listen to those sermons and, uh, and see if you're persuaded yourself that hospitality is at the core. But we believe, or I believe, that it, it certainly is, and we've tried to prove that from the book of Luke during this month. Still, I am not naive to the fact that this is just like plain old hard or super awkward for some of us in here. Probably, probably for most of us, if not all of us. I read, this, uh, I read this in an email last week, and it really resonated with me, and I, I wonder if it will resonate with you too, is what it said. Let's get it out in the open right at the very beginning. Doesn't something about mission and evangelism, can you, yeah, throw this on screen for us. That would be helpful so you can follow along. Uh, Let's get it out in the open right here at the beginning. Doesn't something about mission and evangelism just feel off to you? Every Christian knows we're meant to share the gospel and look for opportunities to witness to Christ, yet almost all of us find it a genuine struggle, if not a gloomy discouragement. The vital, final thing Jesus left his followers to do, the Great Commission, seems to be the one thing about the Christian life that, frankly, doesn't feel so great. And that leaves us feeling awkward or ashamed. If we are entirely honest, when we think about evangelism, we often feel something close to resentment. Most of us silently grumble that in being recruited to evangelism, we're the ones being put upon. We first came to know Jesus very happily, receiving his mercy and his invitation to new life. But then along came this unexpected and slightly puzzling additional step of having to be a witness to him in the world. Like a car shifting into the wrong gear, we came to a juddering halt. We've been offered free grace and forgiveness, but now there's a demand? Christianity, we fear, was just too good to be true. Mission is the inevitable catch tacked onto the list of benefits we signed up for. It's the complicated and rather unwelcomed add-on to salvation that God included in the deal as a sweetener for himself. Those are sobering words to read, but they feel true to my experience as a Christian. I don't know if they do to you. So I want to warn you today. Today's text is a hard word, a convicting one. It has laid me low. There's not a lot of ha-ha here, so brace yourself. Still, I do think that the way Jesus engaged in evangelism can help ease some of the pain that is expressed in that email. And what we've been doing this month in Luke is trying to demystify evangelism, trying to reassure ourselves that it's not as intimidating or as complicated or as burdensome as we like to make it sometimes. Tim Chester says this, Jesus didn't run projects 
establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. If you share meals, and if you have a passion for Jesus, then you'll be doing mission. Meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. So what kind of amazing God do we have that allows us to accomplish his mission with a cheesesteak and cheesecake? I almost said cheesecake, but they're both great. We get to accomplish his mission around a table with cheesesteaks and cheesecakes in our mouths. And so while the call of Jesus is high and hard, it is, it's so doable when we see how Jesus did it, truly. So today we examine another meal that Jesus ate from Luke 14 context. It, it is a Saturday. It's the Jewish Sabbath, and Jesus has been invited to dinner by one of the leaders among the Pharisees. And the first thing he does is heal a man of dropsy. He walks into the house, and he heals this man of dropsy. Today, we call this uh, edema. It's just a way of describing uh, a disease with, where, where someone is swollen with an abnormal accumulation of fluid in different parts of their body. We're not going to spend time on this healing piece today. The thing that we're going to hone in on is what Jesus does to unmask the pride of the guests and of the host right there in front of everybody. So here's today's big idea. It's kind of like a portable thing that we can take along with us uh, at the end of our time together today. It's this. Christian hospitality is radically ordinary, selfless, and inclusive. Christian hospitality is radically ordinary, selfless, and inclusive. And we'll see this play out in the, form of, in the form of three warnings from Jesus today. First, uh, and I might have gotten a little too cute with my wording here, so just forgive me, uh, but it, it worked for me. Uh, hopefully it'll work for you. Don't weaponize hospitality for reciprocity. Here's where I get too cute. Don't waste hospitality on insularity. I'll explain what that means in a second. And don't trade God's hospitality for idolatry. These are three warnings in the text today. Well, verse 1, if you look at it, it says the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. Verse 7, though, indicates that they weren't the only ones watching closely. Jesus was watching the Pharisees closely, too, returning serve. Look at verse 7. He noticed how they chose the places of honor. So he's sitting there, watching them, observing how they're acting. And what does he look for? He's not interested in their fancy clothes of the rich people. He doesn't look at the status or titles of the guests. He looks for what they love. Often the tables during this time were like in the shape of a U, like this. Uh, and the host would sit sort of like in the bottom part of the U, right down here. Uh, and the host at this particular meal uh, was the, the ruler of the Pharisees, a very important man. He's like at the top of the food chain of a very religious society. And so this is a very, very important man. And so everyone is sort of gunning for this spot right here next to this, uh, the, the place of importance where the host would sit. I think maybe like the equivalent for us on a Sunday morning here would be the back pew. <laughs> That's where everyone is gunning for uh, in our church gatherings. So all of you guys got the place of honor right back there. No one wants to be close to the preacher guy. No honor up here. Um, anyway, um, so everyone is gunning for that spot. And you've got to imagine that this was a really important relationship to stoke uh, for each of these guests. They, they, they wanted more influence, maybe, or they wanted a promotion, or they wanted a raise, or maybe just the, the ability to be able to say, 
I was hanging out with, you know, the ruler, Phil the Pharisee, the other night, and we had a great time. I know that guy. I've been in his house. And they say that to build themselves up, to give them a little cachet with their, their friends and their peers. Um, so you can imagine all the pious jockeying um, to get to the closest, closest, as close as they could to that head position at that table. So Jesus is just kind of quietly observing all of this. He's watching and pretty quickly discovers what their treasure really is. They love the praise of each other. He watches how they weave in and out of conversations, covertly making their way to the best seat in the house. Nobody fools Jesus, and you won't fool Jesus either. You might have me and everyone else fooled about what is truly motivating you to do what you do. But Jesus not only knows what you do, we all know what you do, but Jesus takes it a step further, right? He knows why you do what you do. So here's the first lesson we learn about hospitality today. We learn not to weaponize hospitality for reciprocity. In verse 14, Jesus touches on something that I think a lot of us can be guilty of. He warns us against being hospitable for the purpose of trying to get something back in return. So instead, he says, intentionally initiate hospitality with people who can't or won't repay you. Look at verse 14. He says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But listen, one of the great cravings of the human heart is the pleasure of having our sense of status boosted by the importance of the people we spend time with. When someone that we kind of think is significant shows us attention, we get a surge of self-importance. So instead of using our hospitality to serve one another, we actually are tempted to use it to serve ourselves and to stoke our own ego. We carefully select who to be extra warm toward in this room because that person can help us sort of feel a certain way about ourselves and cause others to think well of us too. So we try to cozy up to the attractive people or maybe the wealthy people or the smart people or the famous people or maybe the decision makers because we want influence. So we cozy up to them. We look around for who could help enhance our own image, our own ego, or our standing, and we invite them into our lives or into our home. We're willing to help someone who can help us in some way. And so what happens? Our elaborate parties become a means to an end that advantages us and not each other, not the other. Whether we are the guest or the host, we can be guilty of leveraging hospitality for self-promotion and reciprocity. But Jesus calls us to love our neighbor because she is our neighbor, not because she loves us back. Anything less than this, and hospitality becomes a performance rather than a service. This is the nuance between entertaining and Christian hospitality. The focus of entertaining is kind of like impressing others. The focus of Christian hospitality is serving others. So if hospitality is burdensome to you, maybe it's because you're more driven to impress than you are to serve. Hospitality, says Rosaria Butterfield, shares what there is, that's all. It's not entertainment, it's not supposed to be. I was just confessing to Miriam this morning how often I am leveraging hospitality 
to, to impress. And so, I, you know, I'm like a, a slave driver in my home trying to get my kids to rescue our house before you show up to our house. And I'm spending so much time getting it, you know, so manicured and perfect. So that what? So you think well of me. You think my house is just a beautiful castle. And look, it's always like this. And, you know, I can spend, I could have spent that time loving my kids and engaging with them instead of just driving them to work so hard. Why, why is that? I'm driven to impress often instead of bless. So ask yourself, is the goal of your hospitality to impress or to bless? We don't have to be elite at this, just faithful. The guests at this dinner party are consumed with impressing each other and the host. And the host himself is interested in impressing the rich people in town so that they can, in turn, scratch his back too with their own invitations to him. He makes them feel important, and in turn, they make him feel important. Do you see how their hearts are bent on reciprocity? They only serve those who can help them back in some way, serve them back. So if you've ever said this, maybe to a spouse or to a friend, if you've ever said, we keep inviting people over to the house, but no one ever returns the favor, you might be guilty of what the Pharisees are guilty of here, weaponizing hospitality for your own good. Your true motive is being revealed, and the mask is coming off. Maybe you didn't even know you had a mask on about this. Or maybe you're tempted in another way, and this is the way that I'm tempted, I think, most tempted. I get lulled into the lie that my house is my safe space. It's my sanctuary. It's my castle where I am king, and my will is done, and my rest is sacred and deserved. Of course, I never actually say those words out loud. I don't even actually think those words, but, but my actions betray that that is often the way that I feel. I think this is because what we love the most, we fear losing the most. What we love the most, we fear losing the most. If we love comfort, then we fear losing that comfort if we embrace this kind of commitment to Jesus' mission. I fear losing the comfort in the safe space. I think we've forgotten about the tantalizing repayment on the last day that we will get if we function in this way. We live like this day right here is the one that matters, most of us. Not that day, not the last day. But that's a foolish trade-off because we've been seduced by lies. Have we forgotten that our homes aren't castles? Our homes aren't even truly ours. 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so Jesus proposes another way here. Look at verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Here it is. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just on that last day. Some of us weaponize hospitality for reciprocity. Other, others of us waste hospitality on insularity. By insularity, I just mean that we insulate ourselves from hard people or difficult conversations. Many of us too often have written up the wrong guest list. We've sent the Evite to the wrong people, or at least not enough people. We insulate ourselves from discomfort and pain by exclusively inviting those who are squarely in our comfort zone. But Jesus says that Christian hospitality is not insular. 
Jesus says to not waste your time inviting, verse 12, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and repay you in return. Instead, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who have no hope of repaying you in any way. If all you ever do is show hospitality to people who can pay you back in some way, then you're wasting your time and you're wasting your resources. Jesus says that if you tweak your guest list, tweak your guest list to feature those who cannot provide reciprocity, then you will be repaid on the last day and repaid by him, which is way better than getting repaid by each other. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So it's probably time we all prayed in some self-denying willpower for the sake of our neighbors and for the sake of our souls and for that tantalizing repayment on the last day. To live this radically is to demonstrate that you truly do believe that this life isn't really all that there is. That there is another life to come where the consequences of how we live in this life will truly affect the next life. Now listen, I do want to say that Jesus does not intend to end all family meals and just hanging out with friends. This is also a part of our vital discipleship. Jesus ate meals with just his disciples and just his friends too. He did that, but isn't what he always did. I think if we're honest with ourselves though, there is a seductive pull to insulate ourselves from the marginalized of our society. That's because all too often we use our hospitality to gain reciprocity. and We waste it on insularity. I think we're all prone to try to make life especially our homes, as comfortable as possible and to uh, avoid what will inconvenience us and to pursue what will be the greatest earthly payoff. So I think there are at least two categories we should consider here together. We need to show hospitality to the physically marginalized, to the physically marginalized, which is the group of people that Jesus describes here. Now, there are people in my life right now that the Lord is convicting me of even in this very moment. I've insulated myself from them because they constantly smell like weed. They stink. They're dirty. They're annoying. They annoy me. I mean, why take my weed, smoking, smelling friend to lunch when I could just hang with some of y'all, my friends? I'll tell you why. Because they need Jesus. And because Jesus has done this for me, I'm the stinky guy in our relationship. And because Jesus promises a reward, that should be enough motivation for us to step outside of our comfort zone and to engage in this way for their sake, for Jesus' sake. Too many of us, though, I think are sidelined by fears. We fear that people will hurt us. We fear that people will negatively influence our children. That one really resonated with me. We fear that we do not even understand the language of this new world order, least of all as people, we long for days gone by. Leave it to Beaver. Our sentimentality, our sentimentality makes us stupid. She said it, not me. But we need to snap ourselves out of this self-pitying reverie. The best days are ahead. Jesus advances from the front line. Why are we so faithless, church? More than faithless, I think we're just comfortable. We don't want to be bothered with the stuff of eternity when the stuff of now is so pressing and often just so good. When we're so comfortable, we've just forgotten 
about that last day, that repayment that Jesus promises. So we need to show hospitality to the physically marginalized, but also to the spiritually. Why inconvenience myself with hanging out with my neighbor for the game when I could just catch the game with some of my friends? Why do that? Because this is not what Jesus has done, what, what God has done for us in Jesus. He inconvenienced himself, leaving the beauty of heaven to come down so that I could conveniently not have to pay for my sin. Are we the types of people, think about this, are we the types of people that were just good enough to be in with Jesus in his comfort zone? I think not. We are not in Jesus' comfort zone. We come to Jesus with nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We bring nothing useful for our own salvation. We too were the spiritually poor. Nothing to offer to purchase our salvation. Spiritually crippled, no way to get to God without Jesus. Spiritually blind, unable to even see the truth about Jesus. God's hospitality to us is the fuel for our hospitality to others. Why does it make such an eternal difference who you invite to dinner? It is not so much that one meal is all determining. The reason it makes an eternal difference is that it is a litmus test. It reveals where our treasure truly is. It was a litmus test for these Pharisees in Luke 14, and it is for us too, I think. Is Jesus, with all of his commands and promises, like the, the full Jesus package, is it more valuable to us than convenience and comfort? Is he our treasure, or is the world and its comforts our treasure? The answer to that question is not decided in an hour in this room every week. Is Jesus our treasure, or is the world? You cannot answer this in, that, in this room. It is decided very often on evite.com, and hour by hour, every day, by whether we are willing to inconvenience ourselves for those who can't repay us, or whether we insulate ourselves away from them, and so preserve our own comfy routines. I warned you it was going to be a hard word. It matters whom you show hospitality to, because it matters where your treasure is. Well, next, in verses 15 to 24, Jesus launches into a parable about a banquet, and this banquet is a picture of God's invitation to the great banquet of Christianity. It demonstrates who will make it to that feast and who will not make it to that feast. I think this last warning is a pretty stern one for us. Don't trade God's hospitality for idolatry. Now, that word idolatry may conjure up images of, you know, primitive people bowing down before statues in your mind. That's not what I'm referring to here this morning. Uh, for our purposes today, I'm going to go with Tim Keller's definition of idolatry. I think it's really helpful for us. He says, An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement, critical acclaim, or saving face. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your own heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you, uh, you seek to give you what only God can give. Uh, misprint there, sorry. Anything that you seek that can give you something 
more than God can give you. This is exactly what we see in this parable in verse 16. A certain man was hosting this big party, and he had invited so many to this party. But one by one, they had refused to come. One had a field to go see. You can see that in verse 18. Another had to go check out five yoke of oxen, verse 19. This next one is funny, I think. He's like, I I have married a wife, and I cannot come. She won't let me. Uh, So today's equivalent might be something like, I don't know, real estate. I've got to go check out this field. These five oxen. I've got to go check out this car that I'm going to buy. And then family, my wife. Notice it's not evil things. They're actually really good things. It's just ordinary life that is keeping people from the kingdom. Just people living as if this world is all that there is. So we invest all of our time and resources into our houses, into our cars. Or we begin to drift away from our Sunday church routine because of family obligations, be it sports or whatever. One of these guys found his identity wrapped up in real estate. One another, another one in assets. Another one with family. All good things, but not ultimate things. But when these things tug us away from God, they put our souls in danger. The road to hell is paved, not with crimes and scandals, but with things that seem harmless. But over time, they creep in and take up more and more real estate in our hearts, and they acquire an outsized importance in our lives. And we, almost imperceptibly at first, begin to drift, and eventually become so consumed with those things, whatever they may be in your life, that we lose interest in obeying Jesus and in following him and accepting his invite to the banquet. So are you living as if this world is all that there is? Listen, what Jesus is saying here is that there is a great feast coming, and you should want in on this thing, but many of us won't make it. Your rejection of the invitation does not mean a cancellation of the banquet. The banquet is still on, y'all. It's going to happen. You must accept Jesus' invitation to it, though. Don't delay in repentance this morning. You don't know how long you have in this life. You don't even know how long you might have interest in the invitation from Jesus. You may get to a point where you are just so indifferent and so endanger your soul in a very serious way. So all of these folks here uh, decline the invitation for lesser things. So the host of the dinner in the parable said to his servant, you can see this in verse uh, 21, he's like, fine, they don't want to come. Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And so notice that the, this list of people in verse, one, <clears throat> in verse 21 is the same list as those in verse 13. So he had told them before that when they're hosting, they should invite those kinds of outcasts and poor. And now he's telling them with a parable that this is what God does for us. We are the poor. We are the crippled. We are the lame. God's heart is expansive and inclusive toward the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Verse 23, and the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be filled. I am glad that this is the father's heart, else I never would have made it in. He compelled me by his spirit to come in. And so we see Jesus here showing us the father's inclusive heart and Jesus is filling the father's diverse house. 
inclusive heart, diverse house. God intends for his house to be full of and uh, full of and for the bread of life, Jesus, to be enjoyed. He wants the house, the banquet, to be filled with Jesus, and he wants us to all eat of this life-sustaining, life-giving bread. And so he sends his son to be a ransom payment for many and to personally call the guest to God's heavenly banquet. Sadly, the Pharisees, and maybe some of us in here, are too much in love with the seats of honor and with the ordinary things of this life, fields, oxen, family, to care much about heaven in that banquet or to care much about the repayment on that last day. So Jesus goes to the highways and hedges, verse 24, to find us, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the tax gatherers, the sinners, like we've talked about in previous weeks. And he eats with them, and he eats with us. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He sought them, he received them, he ate with them, and he saved them. And as the Father has sent the Son, so the Son sends us. We go in the same way. We eat like Jesus eats, with the people that Jesus eats with, and communicate the things over those meals that Jesus communicated. So as we, as we close here, I just want to help us think in two categories of application, two categories of people to consider here. Jesus showed unique kinds of hospitality to two separate groups of people, the up-and-outers and the down-and-outers. The up-and-outers and the down-and-outers. The up-and-out, like Zacchaeus from last week, or like the ruler of the Pharisees this week in Luke 14 and his rich friends, he's ministering to them, he's showing hospitality to them, but also the down-and-outers too, right? Like the lame, the crippled, and the blind from the parable at the end of our text today, or like the sinful woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair like we learned from Luke 7 a couple of weeks ago. Up-and-outers, down-and-outers. Listen, the reality is that you and I, we, we live and we worship in a middle-to-upper-middle-class community. And soberingly, Jesus says that it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Have you really taken stock of that? Because by all accounts, throughout history, we are rich. We are so rich. He says, Jesus says, it would be just as likely for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is what we, in God's providence, are tasked with, though. By grace and through the Spirit's power and help, we are shoving camels through the eyes of needles because we live in a middle to upper middle class community. We need to pray, truly pray, that we will have the wisdom in knowing how to go about warring against the American dream. People here in Roslyn are so self-sufficient. They don't need anything. So why would they need Jesus? Why would they darken our doors? if they have everything that they need. So pray that our church will be creative in demonstrating that Jesus is better than stuff. Jesus is greater than things. But one consequence, if you think about it, one consequence of us living in a middle to upper middle class community is that we're going to have to get a little creative in finding the marginalized people that Jesus calls us to show hospitality toward. The reality on the ground is that they are harder to find in our communities maybe than the community that Jesus was speaking into. The up and out are pretty visible. The down and out aren't as visible. I'm wondering if in a few minutes here you could help me with a little bit of application. So uh, I think a little bit of group think might be helpful here. So think for a second of how we might be able to cross paths with the down and outers 
living in our own communities, not, not exiting our community to go to another one, that there's nothing wrong with that at all, and we probably should, could, and should do that. But what about in the communities that we live, work, shop, and play in? Think about how we might be able to cross paths with the down and outers. Um, think about that for a moment, and while you're considering that, let me relay a concern that I have about our own church's growth. Josh is concerned about church growth. Isn't that a weird thing for the pastor to say? What a weird thing to say. I know, I get it. Being concerned about church growth is a strange thing to consider. But I am concerned that we have a growing, that we do not grow into an unhealthy and ungodly contentment in our church, with our church. It's growing, its growth has been largely to the... uh, because of the fact, let me say it like this, it's growing without any of us really having to show selfless and inclusive gospel hospitality to neighbors and friends. So why would we bother ourselves with any of this? Why would we cramp our style by getting to know our neighbors? The room is full already, and it's getting fuller every week. Listen, I, I actually, I really am thankful for church growth. It's been fun to ride this wave of momentum with you. The Lord has been kind and good, truly. I love what God is doing here. Almost every day, for many years, I have been praying from Luke 10, verse 2, that God would bring more laborers in for the harvest. Harvest, And by God's grace, he has done that. But at the end of the day, if we're honest, our church's growth has come largely as a result of what Kathy Keller calls the circulation of the saints. We don't, we don't want that. We want to see the sinners and the, the, the lame and the crippled and the blind coming to join us and join the ranks among us. I'll take this growth. It's been wonderful, but it is not enough. And we should be discontent, have a holy discontentment about this. The problem is, and what Jesus is saying here, is that we can't complete the mission with just each other. We're comfortable in our holy huddles and in our church cloister. But when our souls were at risk, Jesus didn't stay in the holy huddle of the Trinity. He came to the highways and hedges looking for us. And thank God he found us by the Spirit's power. But he calls us to do the same. Around the table with a neighbor or a down and outer or an up and outer with a napkin in our lap and a fork in our hand. So just I want to do a quick exercise here. Uh, how many of you became a Christian because of listening to a podcast? Any of us in here? A sermon, podcast? How many of you became a Christian because you heard the gospel from a TV preacher? Two or three of us. How many of you became a Christian simply by reading the Bible? A couple more of us. How many of you became a Christian because a friend or a family member told you about it? Yeah, take a look around. Do you see this? (laughs) Your life matters. Your witness matters. Your meals matter. Your ordinary hospitality matters. Don't discount the fact that you live in the zip code and on the block and in the address that God has providentially given you. You're there on purpose and your life matters. I'd like to ask you to pray for my friend, Alfonso. He is a neighbor that I invited into our home this past Friday. I invited him this past Friday for a future time into our home for a meal. He was walking down the street with his little dog, Yoshi. Uh, I was weed whacking. 
Chris in here somewhere told me he saw me while I was weed whacking. Maybe he saw me talking with Alfonso. But I had this text from Luke 14 kind of circulating and filtering through my soul while, while, while I saw him walking by. So I, I set down the weed whacker and I engaged. God put us next to him for this season and for a reason. And so pray for me that I would follow through with him and on my invitation and pray that he would follow through on his accepting of my invitation. Pray that I have boldness to share the gospel with him. And pray that we bring like our linguine A-game because he is a native Italian um, and food is really important to him. Last week I said something like, if you can recite a thousand Bible verses but don't know your neighbor's names, you might have missed the point of those verses. What I didn't tell you about my interaction with Alfonso is that I didn't know his name until this past Friday. To my shame. But as we allow the Spirit to do his work through this book, by God's grace, our behavior changes and fruit is born. I pray that you'll experience a similar spurt of growth in your own life. I pray that we'll all take steps toward being gospel foodies like Luke and most importantly like Jesus. Christian hospitality is radically ordinary. I mean, Linguini is the centerpiece. Like it's ordinary. Gospel hospitality. Maybe we need to name it gospeltality. All right, we make up a word today. Gospeltality. It is ordinary. It is selfless. It is inclusive. So don't weaponize hospitality for reciprocity. Don't waste hospitality on insularity. And don't trade, most importantly, God's hospitality for idolatry. Okay, I mentioned a moment ago that I wanted to hear any creative ideas that y'all might have about demonstrating hospitality to the down and out here in our neighborhoods on the outskirts of Philly. So does anybody have any ideas about how we might do this effectively? Yeah, Mel. Excellent. Beautiful. If you didn't hear them, uh, Mel and Marlene and Dan Hibbs lead an organization or a, or a ministry called Grief Share, and they probably have eight to ten people in on a weekly basis, and they care for them through their grief. Often it comes in the wake of a death of a family member or a friend, and so they're working through grief. There are many needy people in there. They could use help. It's just an, about an hour and a half on a weekly basis back there in room 201. If you're interested in that, uh, track Mel down afterwards. Create friendships, relationships with these people over the course of eight to ten weeks. Invite them into your home or out to eat somewhere and share, share Jesus with them. Excellent idea. Thank you, Mel. Anybody else have any ideas? Yeah, Colleen. Yeah, Cradle of Hope is an excellent opportunity to do that as well. Rachel Malelli, I don't think she's here this morning, but she's the executive director. Um, we can get you in contact with her if, if you would like to be uh, put in contact with her. Cradle of Hope is especially geared toward helping young moms uh, with babies who, are, who don't have a place to live and are looking to get back on their feet. It'd be an excellent opportunity to, to care for those women right here. It's right in Glenside. So, yeah. Anybody else have 
an opportunity. Those are two excellent ones. I would encourage you to, to think about engaging, think seriously and pray seriously about engaging in one of those. Yeah. Yeah, be on the lookout for those in your neighborhood who they may not be blind or lame or crippled, but maybe they might be older and have more difficulty getting out there to do that. Excellent uh, idea uh, of a way to, to show hospitality. I don't want to cut us off. Anybody else have anything to say? Uh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, just having like lenses on. We need to change our lenses, uh, putting gospel, gospel lenses on to be aware of the needs um, instead of thinking of our homes as our castles or our neighborhoods as our safe places. Uh, being aware of what's going on around us would, would do us a whole lot of good. Yeah, excellent. There's probably a lot more, um, but those are, that's some food, food for thought. Didn't even mean to do that, but um, there, there you have it. Um, uh, we're going to pray now. I can't remember who's doing our, I think Kate is doing our application prayer. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, even the hard words that, are, that make us feel uncomfortable. Um, we thank you for how your word reproves and corrects and equips us to do the things that you call us to do. And um, I've been convicted this morning of how I quickly or easily want to be with people that are easy to talk to who um, perhaps could repay me or owe me, and um, I confess that to you, and I ask that you would help all of us to turn in repentance too, and to look more like you in this way. Help us to believe that we will be blessed by inviting the poor and the lame and the crippled into our homes, that we will be repaid on the last day, and that that is better than being repaid um, today and repaid in ways that are sinful in our own minds of how we think we should be paid or ought to be repaid. Thank you, God, for pursuing us to the highways and the hedges that you went to great lengths, that you gave up everything to come down to this earth, to take on our flesh, to be made like us in every way without sin. We thank you because we are so undeserving. We are the poor. We are the crippled. We are the lame and the blind. And we just pray that you would work in us desire for these things, that when we leave here, we wouldn't quickly forget what we've heard and that we would um, be hungry to do your work, that we would be hungry to act, 
to invite in our neighbors in ordinary ways to be okay with not having amazing meals, but sharing what there is, and that's enough. Help us, Lord, to be obedient, and we thank you, Lord, again, just for your incredible love for us. Amen.